Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. Terry Schiavo collapsed with a cardiac arrest in 1990, she could have had no idea that 32 years later, people all over the world would know her name and care very much about the manner in which she died. What began as a private family tragedy ultimately exploded into an international cultural conflagration and what I consider to be the most important legal case involving American bioethics since Roe v. Wade. When it was over, Terry was dead, society bitterly divided, and our culture changed fundamentally, and from my perspective, not for the better. My guest on this episode of Human Eyes, journalist and best-selling author Lynn Vincent, has written and hosts a new podcast that looks deeply into the Terry Schiavo case, what happened, and why it still matters. Vincent is the number one New York Times best-selling writer of 11 nonfiction books, with more than 16 million copies in print. Lynn's latest book is Indianapolis, the true story of the worst sea disaster in U.S. Navy history and the 50-year fight to exonerate an innocent man, written with National Geographic historian Sarah Vladek. Indianapolis was chosen as one of the best of 2018 by Barnes & Noble, Kirkus Reviews, Military Times, Amazon, and NPR. Among Vincent's other best-selling books are Same Kind of Different as Me, with Ron Hall and Denver Moore, and Heaven is for Real with Todd Burpo. Both were released as major motion pictures. While on active duty with the U.S. Navy, Vincent served during Operations Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Her military experience proved critical in writing Dog Company, a true story of American soldiers abandoned by their high command, written with former 101st Airborne Infantry Commander Captain Roger T. Hill. A veteran journalist, Lynn's investigative pieces have been cited before Congress and the United States Supreme Court. She's been profiled in major media outlets, including Newsweek and The New Yorker. She is now the investigator and host of Lawless, a true crime podcast that examines a frightening fact of American life, that not every crime is against the law. Lawless is produced in collaboration with World Radio, a division of World News Group. Vincent's premier lawless season digs deeply into the Terry Schiavo case. Full disclosure, I have very strong opinions about Terry's death. I wrote extensively about the controversy when it was happening, remained very close to Terry's family, and I was interviewed for the podcast. Before we start our conversation, let's listen to the trailer for the first season of Lawless. They say that history is written by victors. The Terry Schiavo case has gone down in history as fanatics against medicine, as reason against Christianity. What this was was a high-tech mob. You may remember the Schiavo case as a bitter public feud over a brain-injured woman's right to die or right to live. It started as a fight between her parents and her husband. Doctors insist she will never recover consciousness. An ordinary American family struck by tragedy. Come on, Terry, get up. And I heard her gasping. She was breathing. United at first until money, betrayal, and a death wish tore them apart. It was to a point where Terry wasn't going to function. There There is no way that they're going to starve a disabled person to death. I'm New York Times bestselling author and World Magazine senior writer, Lynn Vincent. In 2001, I became one of the first writers to report on Terry Schiavo for a national audience. 
That was more than 20 years ago. But Terry's story never left me. There were unanswered questions, unsettling details. That's why I decided to reinvestigate the case for my new world radio podcast, Lawless. Lawless is a true crime podcast that examines a frightening fact of American life, that not every crime is against the law. Yeah, the devil's come to take me. In 1998, eight years after Terry suffered her brain injury, her husband went to court. Michael Schiavo argued that his wife was in a kind of waking coma and that she wanted to die. I think that every person should have the right to make your own decision about your personal future. But did Terry really want to die? He was living with another woman. There was a lot of money that he would have assumed upon her death. What else do you need to know? The fight over Terry's life divided the nation, sparked protests, and ignited a media firestorm. Since the beginning, there have been close to 40 people arrested outside. All week, I have been telling you that this thing is euthanasia. We're murdering her. The case marked the first time in American history that a judge imposed a death order in civil court. And it transformed our treatment of the disabled in lethal and sometimes profane ways that still affect us today. Terry Shivo is kind of a lipo. What a lively little bugger. Maybe we should just unplug her. What really happened the night Terry suffered her brain injury? And what if everything we heard in the news about the Shivo case is based on a lie? Join me for the premiere of Lawless, Reasonable Doubt, the Terry Schiavo story. Lynn, welcome to Humanize, and thank you for your service in the military. Thanks, Leslie. Thanks so much for having me. I like uh, my guests to show their human side before we get into the gist of and the meat of our conversation. What interested you in becoming a journalist? I felt a calling to write from a young age, but I was never attracted to writing fiction, to making up stories, although I read a ton of novels and I have tremendous respect for novelists. But I was always just attracted to nonfiction and particularly narrative nonfiction because it really illustrates what it means to be human. And, and uh, I love to tell stories that explore the universal in the particular. And I think Terry's story is one of those. That's interesting. They always say that uh, truth is stranger than fiction, and it often turns out that way, doesn't it? Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned my book, Indianapolis. If you had said that 1,195 men were going to go down in the middle of the Pacific and create the biggest shark story that we still tell today, and then miraculously be rescued, uh, no one would believe it. Yeah, just just a remarkable thing. The concept of lawless I find very interesting. You call it a true crime pro- podcast, uh, but it actually covers controversies in which laws were not broken. That's, a, that's an intriguing concept. What gave you that idea? I think we, as a culture in America have devolved so that what we used to have a shared morality, a shared Judeo-Christian ethic, and that has um, eroded and been chipped away at so that, so that now um, what once would have been prosecuted as a crime is unexceptional and not only unexceptional, celebrated. So Lawless explores what would be considered moral and ethical crimes but also, in some cases, actual crimes. Uh, but the Shivo case, which is your first season, uh, was not an actual crime. Under the law, removing Terry's feeding tube was not a crime. That's correct. That's correct. In fact, it was not only not a crime, it was uh, judicially sanctioned. Judicially sanctioned, and as I mentioned, uh, even celebrated. And it really changed how we look at what it means to be human, what it means to be a person. And uh, I think that was one of the most frightening aspects of the case. Uh, I was going to ask you about that a little later, but what, since you brought it up, explore that a little bit more, please. I went down to St. Petersburg, and Michael's original attorney, Dan Greco, still lives down there. Really and nice we're talking guy. about Michael Shivo, Terry's husband. Yes, Michael Shivo, Terry's husband, original attorney. 
uh, Dan Greco, he still lives down there and he graciously granted an interview. Uh, we spent a lot of time with him together. We thought it was, you know, a, a very beneficial interview, very uh, even handed. Uh, but one of the things that Dan said was, "We're this is almost a direct quote. We're talking about Terry like she's a viable person. She's not a viable person. And um, my production assistant, Lillian, who was down there with me, uh, she commented on that afterwards. She's a very young lady, 23 years old. And she thought that that was um, a troubling observation that Dan made, that, that Terry, because of her medical condition, was no longer a person. Well, this case epitomized for me was the narrowing of human beings who are considered part of the moral community. We're beginning to push people off the lifeboat, if I might use that metaphor, based on uh, capacities, based on physical disabilities and mental disabilities. Uh, and, and it's a very disturbing uh, concept. It is a disturbing concept. And uh, it has to do with, as you've mentioned in, in your work, uh, quality of life. And that subjective quality of life judgment that is now being um, applied to disabled people by disconnected uh, parties, such as medical boards and ethics, ethics panels. And I think that one of the big problems with Terry's case was that, you know, as, as her brother in particular, Bobby Schindler, continues to say, we were willing to accept Terry just as she was. And of course, the question of what was she or how was she or how cognitively able was she is, well, continues to be an open question. But there was never any doubt in the Schindler family's mind that Terry was a person, that she could give and receive love, that she was responsive. Uh, and yet, under the law, the, the, those disconnected persons that I mentioned or those disconnected groups were able to come in and override the judgment of a family who was willing to accept Terry as a, as a sister and a daughter and a, and a niece, uh, just as she was. But the, the people who supported uh, Terry's dehydration, and just uh, to fast forward here, Terry is uh, dehydrated to death by having uh, all sustenance withheld uh, at the end of, of the case. Um, they would say that actually the person who was closest to her was her husband, and he was the one uh, who uh, had filed the lawsuit to permit this dehydration uh, and uh, uh, is the one who had guardianship of Terry. So you really did have an intrafamily dispute, and the court ruled in favor of the husband, which a lot of people would think, well, you know, if, my, uh, if I were in a terrible circumstance, I'd want my spouse to be the one to decide too. It's interesting. Uh, <laughs> there's actually another podcast that was probably one of the most recent podcasts done on the Terry Schiavo case, and it's called You're Wrong About. And they did a, a podcast on the Schiavo case in 2019. It was just one episode. But they brought up that exact issue, Wesley, the issue of whether the Schindlers even had a right to file for or fight for the guardianship of their daughter. And even Dan Greco told me in the state of Florida, and I, I know it's this way in other states, anyone who is related by blood or marriage and can prove to the court that they have the ward's best interests at heart can file to be the guardian. On the You're Wrong About podcast, they pretty much said the exact opposite. And this misinformation has trickled down into the culture as though the Schindlers were asking something completely unreasonable and outrageous that they should be their daughter's guardian instead of the husband. And I want to hasten to another topic here because um, many people would say, of course, I want my spouse to be making these decisions for me. Unfortunately, I think it's legitimate to raise questions about some of the assertions that Michael Schiavo made to the court on behalf of Terry and what her actual wishes were. And we're going to be exploring those. Let's let's uh, get into the people who were involved in this. And and what's really remarkable is that uh, prior to this uh, huge news story breaking out around the world, most of them were private people. 
Um, so, for example, Terry Schiavo, who was the subject of this litigation and this uh, this cultural uh, discussion, tell us a little bit about Terry uh, before she became injured and then what happened to her. I think it's really great to talk about Terry because a lot of times uh, she is kind of a caricature. She's kind of a symbol. And we forget that she was a, a 26-year-old woman who was uh, fun and vivacious. She worked at Prudential Insurance in St. Petersburg, Florida. She was a, a front desk receptionist. Uh, she worked there with her best friend, Jackie Rhodes. Terry grew up outside Philadelphia, uh, normal 60s and 70s kind of upbringing in the Philly suburbs. Her, uh, She had a, a younger brother, Bobby, and an older sister, Suzanne. And um, one of the things that would come out later amid this controversy is that from elementary school up through high school, Terry was very overweight. And her family doctor, uh, or actually her mother, consulted the family doctor about it. And the doctor said, Mary, do not say a word to Terry about her weight. When she's ready, she'll come to you and then we'll do something about it. So in... Uh, 1982, 1983 timeframe, Terry came to her mother and said, hey, mom, I'm ready to lose weight. So the doctor put Terry on Nutrisystem and she lost ultimately 65 pounds, but 40 pounds initially over the course of a year and was uh, did it in a very healthy manner. Why does this matter? It matters because it would later come to bear on whether or not at the time of her collapse, Terry had a secret eating disorder a secret struggle with bulimia. When Terry uh, struggled with her weight uh, as, a, as a child and an adolescent, she was very shy and reserved. But after she lost the weight, she came out of her shell and she blossomed. She loved to joke with her dad. She had kind of a sly sense of humor and a hilarious giggle. You know, she, guys started to notice her and uh -huh. she, she noticed them noticing her. And uh, one thing that I, I think is kind of fun is um, when we were both growing up, uh, I didn't know her, but we both had a, a crush on Starsky, of Starsky and Hutch. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, so basically, Terry was a, a uh, average, happy young woman, and uh, she fell in love with a man named Michael Shivo. Tell us a little bit about Michael. Michael grew up outside Philly also. He had... Uh, four brothers. Uh, so he was one of five brothers and they were, you know, they would kind of get into scrapes and rough housing. He talks in his book about uh, the fact that his brothers said he was kind of a mama's boy growing up. And uh, so that's not me saying that, that was Michael saying that. And uh, so he said he has just a, had just a normal uh, upbringing also in the sixties and seventies outside Philadelphia. Um, Michael and Terry met in uh, 1983 at a community college in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And what was, uh, at the time of when uh, Terry uh, collapsed, uh, what, what was Michael doing for a living? Michael was a restaurant manager at a high-end Italian restaurant called Agostino's. And that restaurant was actually owned by Dan Greco, who owned it with his brother. His brother was in real estate and, and may still be in real estate. Uh, but they also, um, uh, Dan was an attorney, and then the two of them together owned this restaurant. And if you, uh, I, I uh, saw Michael Schiavo in the flesh once. Uh, I was at Flor in Florida for the Supreme Court ruling or the hearing on on the case that we'll get into later. And I, I noticed he's a very tall, he was a very uh, strapping kind of good-looking man. So you actually had a very attractive couple in Michael and Terry Schiavo. Absolutely. Uh, they were a little bit of an odd couple in that she was five, six and he was right. six, six. Yes. But you're right. You know, he at at that time, uh, uh, he was well, he's always been six, six, but, you know, blonde mustache, very handsome. Yes, very striking. And she was very pretty. And Bob and Mary Schindler are the parents who you've mentioned before. What did Bob do for a living? And tell us a little bit about them. Bob and Mary met in Corning, New York in 1962, and uh, they fell in love. And, you know, people got married a lot more quickly back then. They got married in, in six months time. And um, Mary became a homemaker. 
Bob eventually went into business with his brother, Fred, who owned a materials handling company. And they were that ordinary suburban couple. And a, a funny story, you know, Mary was definitely the mom who baked cookies for the neighborhood. And uh, I, it suddenly struck me, she must have driven a station wagon. And so I asked Bobby about it. He said, yep, green country squire station wagon with wood paneling. Classic. That's very, that's very funny. Um, one of the people who in this uh, entire cir- circumstance that was not a private person was the judge, Judge George Greer. Tell us a little bit about Judge George Greer. Judge George Greer is a Christian man. He went to Calvary Baptist Church in Clearwater. Um, he was a Sunday school teacher. He was beloved by his uh, fellow members of the congregation. And uh, interesting little factoid about Judge Greer, his roommate in college was uh, the singer Jim Morrison. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Yes. Uh, now, Judge was Judge Greer was a, a trial judge. Uh, in Florida, were, was he an elected judge? He was an elected judge, and he was a probate judge. Right. That he was, was in the probate his- court. And the reason it was in the probate court was because this was a guardianship question. That's correct. So uh, what happened to cause, uh, we don't know what caused Terry to collapse, but uh, she did have a collapse. Tell us a little bit, a little bit about that. I've listened to episode one and it's quite dramatically presented. And I think very effectively presented uh, in terms of the uh, emergency that arose. Uh, just describe it real briefly because I want people to listen to the podcast and they can hear a more detailed version of it uh, from the uh, original podcast. I'll do that. Um, Episode two gives the full story of the night of Terry's injury. And um, so what happened, according to Michael, of course, uh, Michael Shivo is the only witness, right? He's the only witness. So he's got a couple of different things that he says in terms of what happened that night. He says he awoke when he heard a thud in the middle of the night. At other times, he will say he awoke to go to the bathroom and then heard a thud. Uh, In any case, he didn't notice at first, he says at times, and at other times he said he did notice that Terry's side of the bed was empty. And so he says when he heard the thud, he thought immediately, maybe Terry fell. And so he rushed to the bedroom door, opened the door, and saw Terry lying on the floor in the hallway. And of course, the question remains today, what happened to Terry? I read the report from the ambulance. There's no indication that he beat her up or anything like that, that they they said in the report. Here's how the police investigation went. The police were called because the paramedics noticed that Terry was so young and they thought it was unusual. So they called uh, St. Petersburg Homicide and had them come out. And the two detectives were uh, named Brewer and Tower. They came in. They questioned Michael briefly. Uh, By that time, the paramedics had been working on her. They had to work on her for 90 minutes just to stabilize her enough to get um, her down to the ambulance. And so then they took Terry down to the ambulance and Michael tossed his keys to the cops and said, hey, lock up. And uh, so they did. Presumably, they looked around a little bit more and they did lock up. Then they went to the hospital, questioned Michael, and then that was the end of police involvement in the case. Terry was um, severely brain damaged from being without oxygen for a period of time. Is that right? They estimated that she was without oxygen for a period of five minutes. And at at that point, she became a a person with a disability, a severe cognitive disability. And and what surprised me when I got into this case was that for a period of time thereafter, the Schindlers, Bob and Mary and Bobby and Suzanne, and Michael were actually of one accord in what to do with Terry. Uh, tell us a l- little bit about the time and how long it lasted in which they were a unit working on behalf of Terry in agreement with each other. They were a unit for about three years. And uh, I think what's important to recognize is that even when Terry was in the ICU, and she was in the ICU for a period of 44 days, Dan Greco brought up the idea of a malpractice suit. And Greco was trying to help. 
I genuinely believe that. Um, but the amount of the malpractice suit, which Greco suggested be brought against Terry's gynecologist was $20 million, which was an enormous sum in those days. It's an enormous sum today. And so that idea was brought up within just weeks of uh, Terry's injury. Going forward from that, Michael and the Schindlers did work together. As a matter of fact, he and Mary took classes together because Terry was severely disabled and, and she, she wasn't uh, mobile. So they had to learn how to move her from the, the bed to the wheelchair to the chair. And um, so that harmony started to erode according to the Schindler family, even as early as the fall of 1990. She collapsed on February 25th, 1990, but they had started living together. They were able to take Terry home for a few weeks and they really, really started to grate on each other. And um, so they were so all living in the Schindler home. Is that right? They were all living in a, uh, the Schindlers had rented a home in a place called Vina Del Mar. They lived together there. So Michael and Terry and then Bob and Mary. And Bobby and Suzanne, because Bobby oh, really? and Suzanne, yeah, they were still in yeah. college. Yeah. What happened with the uh, malpractice case? Eventually that settled, correct? One doctor settled and one doctor declined the settlement and went to trial because he did not think that he was liable. Um, he was being sued on the basis that Terry had a secret eating disorder and he, the doctor, did not test her potassium levels. And that if he had tested her potassium levels, he would have detected the secret bulimia. And so the general practitioner was added to the suit, a Dr. Prower, and he settled on the eve of trial for $250,000. But Dr. Eigel refused to settle. And so the case went to court. The jury found that Terry did have bulimia and they awarded um, I can't remember the initial award, but the jury was tasked with doing something called comparative negligence. In right. other words, what percent of the fault was the doctor's and what percent of the fault was somebody else's? The jury ultimately found that Terry herself was 70% at fault because she, according to the jury, had concealed this eating disorder. So the original judgment was reduced by 70%. And in the end, Terry got about a little over a million dollars. And then Michael got an enormous award directly to him for loss of consortium. And that was $600,000. And uh, the $1 million to Terry uh, was not in Michael's custody, but was, there was an actual a conservator, a bank or something. Was that right? Uh, yes, a, a medical trust fund, and there was a, an attorney associated with that, and you're, you're correct. Michael did not have control of that money while Terry was alive. And, and shortly thereafter, uh, that's when the real division of the family occurred. I know there's a, there's a different uh, – Michael told one story and Bob Schindler told another. Uh, we'll let, let the uh, podcast speak to that. Um, but eventually, there is a division, and then – Michael refuses to give her antibiotics when she has an infection, and that results in the first litigation between the Schindlers and Michael Schiavo, correct? That's correct. So uh, the way it, the, the timeline looks like this. The malpractice case went to trial in 1992. Uh, the, the award was determined in 1992. The money went to Michael, the consortium money went to Michael in January of 1993. And the medical trust fund was established in 19, in January of 1993. Weeks later, on Valentine's Day, 1993, the Schindlers and Michael had a falling out. And then in July, Michael decided that he didn't want to treat Terry for, for a bladder infection, a urinary tract infection. And he asked the nursing home to withhold antibiotics. The nursing home refused because they said it would be against the law. and. He did not tell the Schindlers that he had done this. They only found it out after the fact, um, days after the fact. And um, when they found out that that Michael had made this order, the Schindlers filed for guardianship. 
And that resulted in a settlement, as I recall, uh, in which um, Michael was allowed to maintain guardianship, but agreed that he would provide antibiotics. He agreed to provide the Schindlers with medical information to keep them abreast of Terry's progress. Now, it's very important, I think, here to, for, to make this point. Terry was not terminally ill. Terry was not only not terminally ill, but the malpractice attorney told the jury that she would live for another 50 years. A normal lifespan. A normal lifespan. And that was part of the predicate for the amount that the jury awarded. That's exactly right. She was not on machines either, was she? She was not on machines. The only thing she had was a peg tube, which is a uh, feeding tube that's inserted directly into the abdomen. And that was turned on a certain number of hours a day. In other words, uh, just to, as meal replacement. And when her nutrition needs were met, that peg tube was turned off. So there was no other sustaining technology. Right. She was, her kidneys worked and were able to produce urine, her liver functioned properly for digestion, et cetera, et cetera. Her blood levels were, were fine. It's not like some in the media depicted her as brain dead because she wasn't. She wasn't brain dead and she wasn't in a coma. The diagnosis was persistent vegetative state. And when we get into the later episodes of the podcast, Wesley, we're going to find out that the doctors who argued that Terry was in something called a minimally conscious state, they were correct. And Dr. Cranford, uh, who was the testifying expert on the Shivo side, was dead wrong. Dead wrong is, is a good use of a, a proper term there. Uh, Cranford, um, I had a lot of run-ins with him. He's now deceased. Uh, but he testified in several cases, in addition to Terry's, always on behalf of dehydrating cognitively disabled people to death. Robert Wenland was one of the cases he was involved in, and I was deeply involved in that case as well. So, so Terry is uh, certainly uh, profoundly disabled. Uh, she's living with the family. And eventually, after the fallout between the Schindlers and Michael, what, where does she live? Does she live in a skilled nursing home? Well, uh, I want to back up just a little bit because um, when Terry, when things got, started to erode a little bit between Terry and the Schindlers when they were living together at Vina Del Mar, she was only able to stay there for a few weeks because the magnitude of her care was just overwhelming. They had no yeah. idea. So she immediately moved to Sable Palm Nursing Home from there, and that was in 1990. And then she was in nursing homes there thereafter until at the end she was in a hospice in 2001 uh, yes yeah and she was in a hospice because they were going to pull her feeding tube not because she was otherwise terminally ill that's correct terry is living in a nursing home as you mentioned and michael decides that he wants to pull her feeding tube do you know what put that idea in his head i have theories about what put that idea in his head. Um, what I will say is that Michael's initial argument in his petition for feeding tube removal was that Terry would not have wanted to live in this persistent vegetative state that it was alleged that she was in. And as evidence of that, he hearkened back to a conversation that he said he had with her on a train um, a couple of years before her injury. And in that train ride, Terry uh, was reflecting on her grandmother, who apparently was about to die or just had died. And Terry told Michael about an uncle that she had. And I've already mentioned him, Uncle Fred, Bob's brother. And she, according to Michael, Terry said that Uncle Fred was severely disabled, that he'd been in a horrible car accident, that his his um, kids were his power of attorney, that he couldn't speak, that he just sat there and stared and drooled, and that she would never want to be like that. And so that's the story that he told in his petition for feeding tube removal. Um, I have since found video of Uncle Fred at Terry's wedding. So um, 
your listeners can find out more about that when they listen to the podcast. People should listen to the podcast. Now, it's important also to understand that a feeding tube is considered medical treatment. It's not like spoon feeding, which is humane care. And so a, a medical treatment can be withdrawn or withheld at the request of the patient or the proper surrogate, even if it means that the result will be death. And in a feeding tube circumstance, there can be no other outcome. So what Michael was requesting when he went to court was to withdraw medical treatment, correct? There's a timeline issue involved here that's pretty interesting. Florida did not define a feeding tube as medical, a medical treatment or medical intervention of any kind until 1999. Hmm. Michael filed his petition in 1998, but legislation was moving through the Florida legislature to redefine uh, the nature of a feeding tube as medical treatment. And uh, who should be working on that legislation with, uh, I believe his name is Senator Jim King in Florida, but an attorney named George Philos. I can't prove this by phone records or uh, conversations or transcripts, but only looking at the timeline. Deborah Bushnell, who was Michael's medical trust attorney, guardianship attorney, I should say, referred Michael to George Philos in 1995. They first spoke in 1996. George Philos sent a letter to the Schindlers announcing the intention to withdraw Terry's feeding tube. And that was in 1997. The petition was filed in 1998. Florida redefined feeding tubes in 1999, and the case went to trial in 2000. Okay, so Michael, obviously, I mean, we can say, went to George Philos. He had the obligation because of the earlier settlement to advise the Schindlers of his plans in terms of medical care. And uh, they decided that they were going to withdraw this medical treatment based on that Harry would not want to live in this condition. Except that it wasn't medical treatment at the time of that announcement. But, but it George was by Filos, the time they actually filed the petition. But George Philos knew that it would be. Yes. And of course, that's what a, a lawyer who's hired is paid to do. So, uh, you know, there was certainly nothing illegal or, or immoral in the sense of uh, unethical as a lawyer in, in that uh, process with Michael. And let's talk about one other thing that happened to Michael during this time period. He met another woman and fell in love. Yes, he met another woman and fell in love. It was his second relationship uh, with a woman since Terry's injury on February 25th, 1990. The month that he met Jody Sintones was the same month that he first ordered the nursing home not to give Terry antibiotics. That was July 1993. They're still together. They got married subsequently. And uh, before Terry died, they had two children together, correct? That is correct. And I believe that they are still together. I've seen uh, photos of them recently on social media. So it, uh, it looked like true love to me. This presents, a, a, to me, the, a greater conflict of interest than the potential financial one, because if you're in love with a woman and she's had at least one of your children and you're laying uh, in bed with her every night and you're married to a different woman, that could create a real pillow talk problem. Well, it wasn't the first pillow talk problem. Um, one of the things that happened in November of 1992 was that uh, in the malpractice trial, Michael testified to his belief in his wedding vows. He said, I love my wife. I married her because I love her. And I want to stay married to her for the rest of my life. Um, while he was giving that testimony, he was actually already seeing another woman. Her name was Cindy Brashers. And that did not come out in the malpractice trial, I take it? No. So the trial is held. Um, and one of the things that, that the Schindlers did that I think was the fatal error for them, it was stipulated for the purposes of the trial that Terry was in a persistent vegetative state. Yes, huge mistake. The reason that's a huge mistake is that at the time in Florida, you could only remove a feeding tube if a patient was PVS. That's correct. So then it was an uphill battle for the next five years for the Schindlers. 
And they would continually try to hire experts, or actually it was pro bono, to come in and reevaluate Terry and to, to really examine was she really in a persistent vegetative state or was it something else? And I have um, multiple eyewitnesses who tes- testified to um, Terry even being able to talk. She was, Will they be on your podcast? Yes. So I want to make a point here. Uh, this is just a very quick summary of what is going to be an incredibly detailed uh, look journalistically at this entire case. And so uh, I'm going to be listening, and I was involved in these issues uh, at the time as a writer and as, as an advocate. Uh, I just think it's very important for people to understand what really happened here, because there are so many misunderstandings and revisionist history narratives that have come forward since this case that a lot of people think they may know the Terry Schiavo case, but really don't. I think you're certainly right about that. And one of those misconceptions is Terry's level of responsiveness. And you know you know what the media is like today. And it, it was somewhat different in 2005 and, and the, the case really started coming into the public consciousness in 2003. But a lot of people get their news from broadcast sources and also mainstream media sources. And by nature, uh, not necessarily because mainstream media is somehow nefarious Um, You know, they certainly do push a certain narrative at times, but let's face it, their time and their space is limited. Um, And so they really did not necessarily have the opportunity to interview as many people as we've had a chance to interview and to look at the fact that Terry responded to music, that Terry responded to her family. People in a minimally conscious state do go in and out of periods of consciousness, and that wasn't redefined until 2018. However, the concept was being uh, discussed as early as 2002. And so, uh, as I mentioned, uh, Terry could speak words. Uh, She responded to um, uh, humor from her dad. She especially loved when her dad would joke with her and, you know, rub her face with his scratchy mustache and so forth. And so this idea went out into the media that Terry was this comatose vegetable who was sort of slack-jawed and drooling and uh, that she had no personality or presence whatsoever. And what I'm saying is that I have interviewed many people who have told me the contrary. And and that will be on the podcast and, and people will be able to hear those interviews for themselves. Yes. And, and not only just um, a little bit of back and forth, but we have one interview in particular with an attorney named Tom Broderson that was absolutely riveting as he described the relationship that he developed with Terry. Judge Greer decided that it was acceptable to remove the feeding tube, but he never went to visit Terry. Is that right? He didn't. And I thought that was really interesting because it says per se in the Florida statute that he was required to do so. He was also required to appoint a guardian ad litem. And after the first guardian ad litem who had recommended against dehydrating Terry, uh, was uh, forced off the case because of a supposed conflict of interest with him and uh, George Philos. Um, He never appointed another guardian ad litem, did he? He did not appoint another guardian ad litem. And we do have a full interview with Richard Pierce, the first guardian ad litem. That's very interesting. And I will want to hear that as well. The appeal is then taken, the order to remove Terry's feeding tube, the Schindler's appeal, And at some point, the case goes national. It becomes, as they say, viral. How did that come to take place? Because this case really did uh, capture the attention of the world. That took place because a man named Jeb Bush was the governor of Florida, and his brother happened to be president. And so, you know, we're fast forwarding a little bit through not only time, but also a transformation of our political culture and a division of our political culture. By the early 2000s, we were definitely, as Americans, becoming more divided into left and right. And so, so many issues where uh, well-intentioned people of good conscience 
were doing things for legitimate reasons began to be viewed through a political lens. And so when Jeb Bush began to get involved because he thought, hey, you know, I'm, I mean, he's an attorney. I'm looking at this and it doesn't look to me like Terry Schiavo has had her due process rights. It doesn't look to me like she's even been afforded the rights that we would afford to, say, a murderer, you know, who at least gets habeas corpus. So um, he began to uh, ask for a de novo review of the case. And when he began to get involved in that way, people who were more on the leftward side of the spectrum, instead of saying, wow, maybe he really does have good intentions here, began to say that he was pushing a right-wing evangelical agenda. Right, even though he's a Catholic. (laughs) The other thing I think that occurred was the internet. Because the Schindlers actually, I think, pioneered this concept of uploading videos into the internet as an advocacy tool. And they, they uh, uploaded a, some video images of Terry smiling and greeting her mother and some other images that uh, I think also helped set the world on fire because it, it uh, kind of proved wrong the idea that Terry was a blob of drooling mess. And so you had, I think you're, you're right about the political aspect. And then I think also the new uh, culture, if you will, of the internet. Uh, this was the, this, uh, they caught a wave. You are right about that. It was really uh, the advent of using the internet as a tool to get the word out about things. And there was an RN named Cheryl Ford who really helped the Schindlers pioneer this. And she uh, started doing email blasts and they started a blog. And, and you are correct. They uploaded pictures of Terry and videos of Terry to counteract the narrative that she was just... Um, a coma patient, essentially. Yeah, and, and the term vegetable, which I reject, no human being's a carrot, um, uh, that she was a living and breathing human being, and it humanized Terry. It did humanize Terry. I think if not for that, people would have just accepted the idea that she was lying there, uh, even with her eyes closed, um, not on moving. On machines, even. People would have th- thought of her as being on machines, which, of course, as we mentioned, she wasn't. So eventually, uh, Terry uh, has her feeding tube pulled, and then the state of Florida passed Terry's law. And Terry's law required that the feeding tube be reinserted and that the case be looked at again and a guardian ad litem appointed for Terry uh, for further court proceedings. And the dehydration that had gone on for several days was stopped. And that led to a a one-year process of further appeals, correct, to see the constitutionality of Terry's law. That is correct. And that was in 2003. But what I think a lot of your listeners may not know is that Terry's tube was removed another time in 2001. And that was, it was out for a period of about 48 hours. And I'm not sure if you remember this story, but the reason it was reinserted is because a woman called into a radio station and she said, Hi, my name is Cindy, and I'm the first woman that Michael Schiavo dated after she had her injury. And right on the radio, she said, he used to tell me that he would go into the nursing home and Terry would already be looking at the door because she could hear him coming down the hall and that she used to cry when he left. And she later was deposed and she told a lawyer that Michael never knew what Terry's wishes were. And so on the basis of that call-in radio show, the Schindlers were able to go into court and get an injunction requiring that Terry's feeding tube be reinserted. So that was the first time in 2001. And then moving on to 2003, as you said, that was the second time that her feeding tube was removed and then reinserted. Eventually, uh, the... uh Supreme Court of Florida found Terry's law to be unconstitutional uh, because it was a uh, interference by the political branches into the judicial branches of government. And uh, Terry was set to die again, but then the federal government got involved and another law was passed. Tell us a little bit about that experience. 
There was an enormous debate on the floor of uh, Congress and then in the Senate. And uh, they called it the Palm Sunday Compromise, actually. It happened in 2005. And so what the, the law that was passed in D.C. required um, Terry to come actually and appear before Congress in a hearing. Of course, that never happened. And um, the interesting thing about that law that was passed was that it was overwhelmingly bipartisan. As a matter of fact, it was the second most bipartisan piece of legislation that was passed during George W. Bush's presidency. People like Hillary Clinton voted yes, people like Barack Obama. So It received unanimous consent in the Senate, and it could not have gone forward if one senator had said no because it was an emergency provision. And so this revisionist history that it was just a bunch of right-wing Republicans trying to save her life is false. It's absolutely false, and uh, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, in one of the debates between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama during the primaries. Uh, I I can't remember who the anchor was, but the anchor said, what is the thing that you regret most as senator? What action did you take that you regret the most? And Barack Obama said, voting yes on on Terry's law. Right. And so this bipartisan law passed, George Bush signed it, and the the law was supposed to have a complete de novo uh, federal experience. That is, a federal judge was supposed to take the case and basically retry it from scratch because there were so many substantive questions about the due process uh, that Terry's defenders for her life said she had been denied. Uh, Unfortunately, the federal judge didn't do that. The federal judge said he looked at the record and said, I find everything is fine. I think the judges were sticking together. And that was basically the end of the judicial road for Terry Schiavo. Uh, Terry is then dehydrated to death. And this is very disturbing, but, but, uh, people who were defending that action said that this is a peaceful way to die for her. And the Schindlers said, no, no, it isn't. Did you get into the disturbing details of her death? I do. And I will, I did, uh, interview the Schindlers about that. I did interview the attorney, David Gibbs. I did interview Father Frank Pavone, who was there at the very end. And I think what typifies that, and we'll definitely get into the details of that in the podcast, there was a point at which Michael Schiavo's attorney came out and appeared before the press right outside the hospice. Um, And this is a paraphrase. Essentially said, I have never seen Mrs. Schiavo look more beautiful or more peaceful. And almost immediately after that, Bobby Schindler came out and spoke to the press. And he said, she's bleeding from her eyes. And so he didn't mean that she was literally bleeding. But um, I have some really disturbing details on what that was really like for Terry Schiavo. Because it is not the same as the natural death of a cancer patient to dehydrate an otherwise healthy person to death. Right. A cancer patient who's dying, for example, their body's shutting down, stopping eating and drinking is a natural process, and that is peaceful. But Terry was able to assimilate sustenance. And so having her be, be dehydrated to death is the same thing as if, it, if you or I were dehydrated to death. And That's it would correct. cause the same, it would cause the same uh, excruciating symptoms. And it, to add to the cruelty, to, correct me if I'm wrong, but in my recollection, they would not even allow her to have ice chips on her cracked lips. They wouldn't allow ice chips. They wouldn't allow uh, Mrs. Schindler, Mary, to put chapstick on her lips. As a matter of fact, the police were under orders that if Mary tried to help her daughter in any way, she would be arrested. Yeah, I I think people forget the brutality and the uh, harshness of what occurred that uh, the public dispute had become so angry and heated. And there were there were inappropriate uh, death threats against Michael Shiva as well. I mean, we can't just say it's all one sided. This this case, for those who uh, may not remember it vividly, was probably as hot as any public 
controversies I've seen in the last 20 years. It was the biggest news story in the world at the time. It was. There were there were internet there was international coverage. And to your point about inappropriate death threats, absolutely. Um, there is a photograph of something else which I consider to be inappropriate, and there may be Christian and Catholic listeners who disagree with me. But um, there is a photo of Christian protesters surrounding Michael's house on their knees in prayer. Now, of course, it was a public sidewalk, so technically and legally they were allowed to be there. But I find that inappropriate. I it's, know that it's intimidating. It's intimidating yes. to go to anyone's house, even if you're not threatening them. By implication, you're saying we know where you live. And I think that there will be listeners who disagree with me on that, and certainly those people with were within their constitutional rights. But again, you know, we're talking about this podcast, not every crime is against the law. So there are some things that are legal, but inappropriate. And um, perhaps many of us wouldn't choose to do those things. Now, after Terry died, eventually polls came to show that the majority, in fact, a large majority of people polled supported her death. Mm -hmm. How do you think we went from... Uh, and I recall when I was writing about this, I didn't know they could do that to a circumstance in which most people in this country, 60%, 70%, whatever it was, thought that what happened was appropriate. How did we get there? I think we got there because of the drumbeat narrative. If you are an ordinary news consumer, especially back in those days, because I don't know if you can remember this. I certainly can remember this, but I remember when national controversies weren't 24 um, seven. But back then uh, that's where we had started to go. And in 2004, Scott Peterson was sentenced to life in prison. Actually, I believe he was sentenced to death for murdering his wife. And that was the 24 seven news story. As soon as the media turned from the Scott Peterson case, there needed to be something to fill the void. And so this was wall-to-wall coverage, and there was a narrative that was going out in the mainstream press, and that was, and this is a direct quote, a comatose woman. That was what she was called. That's not correct. She was not in a coma. And the narrative was presented this way. A loving husband named Michael Scheibo is fighting to fulfill his wife's wishes. Yeah, the loving husband who had two children with another woman that the media rarely mentioned. Exactly. And then the other side, the other party to the case were uh, well-meaning parents who didn't know when to let go. And yep. so that was the narrative that was presented. And if you say that often enough, people begin to believe it. And that's how I think we got from you know people not even imagining that this is something that could be done to actually being in favor of it. And two other things I think added to that. One was the autopsy report and how that was reported. Uh, describe that. Well, I think that your second statement there, how that was reported, is very important. Uh, one of the key things that was either misreported or ignored was that the uh, coroner, uh, a, a doctor named John Thogmartin, all but dismissed the idea that Terry had bulimia in the first place. And so that was a, a very interesting finding because if Terry didn't have bulimia and she didn't collapse due to a cardiac arrest, the question arises, what happened to Terry? We also found that uh, her brain, the which of course had been shriveled by the dehydration, that it was consistent with a diagnosis of persistent vegetative state or minimal consciousness. And the autopsy, I believe, stated that it couldn't decide which because that was a diagnosis, not something you could find in an autopsy. Is that right? That's right. That wasn't something that you could determine post-mortem. And, of and course, yet the media reported that the autopsy said she was in a persistent vegetative state. That's correct. There was a lot of um, misinformation and selective reporting. Yes, and, and lying by omission. And the other thing I think that led to uh, this um, public 
favor uh, of the dehydration was that the case was turned from a fight over a the fate of a young woman to a pro-life versus pro-choice argument, particularly by the New York Times, uh, when Randall Terry uh, appeared, who was the um, head of Operation Rescue, an anti-abortion organization at that time that was doing protests. When he appeared at the side of the Schindlers, that's when the New York Times reported it on the front page and basically took the position, this is an issue of the culture war around pro-life, pro-choice. That is correct. Anytime you associate a polarizing figure with an otherwise sort of um, humanitarian cause, you can get two plus two equals five. And the New York Times did do that. They immediately began to portray the Shivo case, as you said, not over a woman's due process rights or whether the husband had a conflict of interest, but now it was not only a political battle, it was a religious battle. Exactly. It became part of uh, that whole narrative that the media likes to push. And Terry, in my view, and I'm not pretending any objectivity here, was a victim of that. And another aspect of lying by omission is that the uh, media often portrayed the only people supporting Terry as pro-lifers, and that's absolutely not true. For example, the disability rights community, which tends not to be conservative, also uh, was trying to help save Terry's life. Yes, the disability uh, rights community was trying to save her, and um, there were you know, figures as diverse as Nat Hentoff, who was a writer for the Village Voice at the time, and Jesse Jackson, who no one would ever accuse of being on the right. And Ralph Nader. And Ralph Nader, yes. Yeah, and Ralph and I actually um, issued a joint press release about her dehydration. Uh, so, so, And there were conservatives on the other side. Uh, in fact, the conservative position often was that this is an overreach in terms of due process of law, that we have a court system, and that even if we don't like the result of the court's uh, opinion in this case and the, and the rulings, the conservative position was you have to allow the system to work as intended. And I would agree with that position in most cases, and that's why the de novo review was so important, because um, what you'll hear a lot of times, and a lot of conservatives were saying this, and Michael Scheibo himself said it, George Philo said it, is judge after judge after judge has affirmed the findings in this case. They have affirmed Judge Greer. But that doesn't do anyone any good if the original underlying evidence isn't reexamined. And so as far as conservatives were concerned, and as to what you said, they did hold that position but that position is only as good as the original trial court's findings. So let's um, just uh, see, close up here, uh, what happened to some of the people who were involved in this. Obviously, Terry passed away. Uh, what's Michael doing these days? I know he had become a nurse. Is he practicing nursing or do you know what he's up to? He's practicing nursing, and he actually works for the sheriff's department. I believe that he works, this is according to Dan Greco, he's working in a jail. As a nurse. As a nurse. And um, Bob Schindler passed away. You know, he never got over the death of his daughter. He passed away, and uh, the people in his family believe that he died a premature death, and um his uh, son and daughter and his wife say that he never got over the idea that as a, as a man and as a husband and as a father, he wasn't able to save his daughter. Uh, and Mary, Bobby, and Suzanne started a foundation. Tell us a little bit about that. They did. Uh, they started a foundation that is committed to, it's called the Terry Shivo Life and Hope Network. And um, it is committed to helping people in this situation, and particularly helping the families of brain injury patients. And, uh, you know, I've, I've actually, full disclosure, was on the board of the foundation for a period of time. Uh, and uh, one of the more notable cases in which the, the uh, network got involved was the Jahai McMath case, the little girl who had been declared brain dead uh, in California. 
And uh, Bobby Schindler uh, really went out on a limb not to challenge the concept of brain death, but to stand uh, side by side with the family trying to save that little girl's life. That's what he does now uh, and and uh, the family's involved in. Let's end this with, with a question. What do you think is the biggest mistake that people have about the case? And then I would want to ask you, why does her case still matter all of these years later? I think the biggest mistake that people make in thinking about the Shivo case is that it is a case that took place between 2003 and 2005. And I think it's important for people to go back and examine the entire history of the case, because when you do that, as we do on the podcast, um, which will be 14 episodes, by the way. I was going to ask you that. Yeah, yeah. you get an entirely different view of the totality of the circumstances. And so I would just invite your listeners to keep an open mind, set aside politics, and think about what this means in terms of what it means to be human. Um, And what were the circumstances surrounding her initial injury uh, and the initial um, petition for withdrawal of the feeding tube and, uh, kind of form their judgments based on all the facts. And why should people care about this case today? Because, you know, we've moved well beyond the Terry Schiavo case in terms of controversies and, and the media and uh, the, the conflagrations of culture. Well, when you go back and you say, okay, here was a watershed case. Here was a case that changed the way we think about brain injury, the way we think about Um, the right to die, or the right to live, the way we think about what is a persistent vegetative state. And when you think about this case, and you think, wow, this was foundational, this changed things. The question is, why did it change things? And should it have changed things? Were the changes for the better? And were they made on a proper foundation? So what is the, uh, we're going to have on the program notes, uh, a link to the podcast, but uh, if case people want to just get it going now, what is the uh, URL? It's lawlesspodcast.com. Lawlesspodcast.com. And I, I, I hope people will listen to it because uh, this is this is history. And this is a, a case that could actually affect every one of us if one of our family loved ones get into a, a, a difficult situation or a catastrophic injury. And um, 14 episodes, this is season one. Uh, what's next for Lynn Vincent and Lawless after the Shivo episodes have aired? What I would like to do is another season on the treatment of the mentally ill in America in the 20th century. And when you do, I want to hear about it because I'd love to have you back. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Lynn Vincent, thank you very much for being with me. And the podcast is Lawless. And I hope everyone will listen. I sure will be. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org slash human. We can only do this work speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.